One day and the next day gone Sometimes you bend, sometimes you stand Sometimes you turn your back to the wind There's a world outside the dark and door Where blues won't haunt you anymore With the brave are free and love is so Come ride with me to the distant shore We won't hesitate Break down the garden gate There's not much time left today Welcome back to Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm a well-traveled Bill Bohr. You you are well-traveled. Where were you? I was in central Pennsylvania. I did a quick uh, overnight uh, to celebrate Mother's Day with my mother and father and did a little work around their house. They're great folks, but they're getting up there in years. And so I had a good visit with them. So happy Mother's Day, Mom, and to all you mothers out there as well. Yeah, happy Mother's Day indeed. Uh, well, today, we it's interesting because... I didn't realize this, that traditionally the President of the United States' first commencement address is usually at Notre Dame. Uh, I did not hear that uh, uh, Pence is going to Notre Dame. Right, right. Pence. So this is a new uh, – Trump broke with this tradition to begin his first – to have his first commencement speech at Liberty, 2 Corinthians, where the Spirit of the Lord is his liberty. Yeah, kind of like the Notre Dame of the fundamentalist Baptist East. Well, it's very interesting because he talked about this letter that the great Reverend Falwell had on his wall. And Jerry, you have it on there. But basically, it was from the priest who had kind of made Notre Dame big, the president that made it sort of an academic right. and athletic powerhouse. It was much more smaller, regional kind of school. And uh, he basically was saying that he wrote Jerry Falwell and hoping that he could have the kind of success and both academically and, and athletically for the sake of faith, the faith right. community. And so then Trump proceeded to go through the Big East or whatever conference they're joining, the big – I forget. Well, I don't – yeah, they're joining a major conference. Yeah, he's like, Jerry, oh, look at the, like, should I read the schedule? Auburn. Oh, Jerry, are you sure? There's a big guys. Well, hey, that's not a conference game. Ball, uh, uh, it was Auburn, BYU. Um, uh, Auburn's uh, the SEC. So. Yeah, maybe it's just – but then Army is, is – All right, that's the Metro East maybe. He's like, Army, I don't know. I'm going to be at that game. I don't know who I'm going to root for. <laughs> We're going to have to – it's a tough, Jerry. But then in a speech that was uh, was – Mediocre. I mean, which for Trump is it made him look like Cicero. I mean, <laughs> Kikaro. Uh, he basically quote did what everybody will do, and I I bet you fifty percent of that nah, would be high. But a lot of commencement addresses, it's commencement address season, will feature the poem "The Road Not." Taken one of two poems that people may actually still read. Yeah, it is actually the most Google searched poem in, in English language poem. I think there's a beautiful rendition of it by Vaughn Williams to sing it. Ah, well, it's very interesting because uh, it, I'm not going to sing it for you right now. And you know, it's interesting that that there's been a book by Robert or written about this poem. And what's interesting is the text of the poem. Right now, everybody sort of the way Trump used it, the way everybody uses it is you know to sort of Walk, march, you know, walk to the beat of a different drummer. Like me. Exactly. Yeah, I was, what I did, I didn't pay vendors. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, do, didn't pay my taxes. I didn't, I never gave him the tax returns. Did not date him, did not date American women. No. He said maybe when he leaves office, he'll give them. Cause you know, he, I, I am very proud of them. Who's proud of their tax returns? Like who, who says that? Yeah, I don't. I'm very proud of my tax returns. Um, so. I want to see the poem goes two roads diverge in yellow wood and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down 
one as far as they could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as, f- as far that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, what's interesting about that is Frost is actually saying that the, I didn't take the road less traveled by. But as I'm recurring, as I'm, as I'm calling back into historical memory, I'm going to narrate this like I did. Right. I'm, and I'm going to... It's dark. It's darker. It, it is darker. It's funny because Robert Orner's book on this is that, you know, what's really interesting is that most poem, most works of art purport to be what they are. Like when we think of White Christmas, we do think it's a song about right. winter and memory. Or when we think of Ulysses, we, we do think it's this, we know it is this complex you know, narrative in Dublin in one day with mm. complex characters. And sort of, he's like, we talk, think that we know what this poem is and we don't. Right. <laughs> and then he talks about how basically there's two schools of thought, major schools of thought. There's, there's people that interpret Frost as dark, as, as, you know, people that are in the poetry kind of guild and in critical world. Yeah. And then there are people that like think of him as this sort of Americana, you know, right. and, and these are the ones that tend to view him as this sort of folk, uh, countryside wisdom sort of American figure. And they, and these are the ones that sort of almost seemingly deliberately misinterpret the poem. Well, you know, it's funny. Part of it, you know, when you think of JFK and Camelot, but they, he was surrounded by a lot of nuanced intellectuals. That's often that's often lost on people. It may be – that doesn't mean they may always made smart decisions, but he surrounded himself with many of the more interesting and intelligent people of his time. Yeah, and one of the points Orr makes is he thinks that really neither picture of Frost gets the gets that the whole thing mm. in this poem, that neither the dark, real dark view, nor the kind of Americana, you know, folk sort of wisdom, fortune cookie parser, fortune cookie wisdom kind of person. He thinks that this poem is complex, and it, it's really about the complex nature of individualism, of, of choice, of the decisions we make, and that oftentimes... We're less free than we think, or oftentimes we tell ourselves stories to make sense of the decisions we've made and the way we've exercised our freedom or made decisions or, or, or realized maybe we didn't have as much freedom or, or as much awareness as what was, of what was going on. And so we kind of, we, we tell ourselves stories that make us, that make sense of where we're at. And I think that that is a great message for undergraduates. <laughs> uh, you know, what's it, yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think again, we... Because it's it's one of the great issues. What is the nature of the will? What where are we free? What are we not? And and it's funny you pick a pick an epic, pick a time period, and in some version it's always being debated. And there's a voice and counter voice to it. You know, um, I uh, don't do as much of it as I used to, but over the years I've done a lot of pastoral counseling with folks. Um, had a little bit of a psychology background, and just you know, people would come to talk to me. And, uh, you know, I think I noticed this in other people before I fully noticed it in myself, that if you're seeing someone um, over a long period of time, it was, and I learned, I can't remember how or where I learned this, but it, it happens where you can have an opportunity for them to tell the founding story or the critical story or whatever it is. If you have them tell it over again, or if it, just in the natural flow of, of, you know, the therapeutic relationship, people revisit a core happening 
It's amazing how different it's often told. Oh, well, yeah, everybody does that. I think you don't even have to be having a therapy. If just a friend, if you or look at yourself and the way you tell stories, you make sense of things differently in light of uh, in light of the way different events unfold. And, and we often, you know, we, 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 what is that Jeff Goldblum saying? The big chill. We can get, a human being can get through a day without food or without sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. Right. But what I find interesting about it in the therapeutic or even in the spiritual direction or in our own journey and our, and our own introspection is I think the different versions of the story, uh, reveal a different level of insight to either the very thing you're saying. The complexity of choice. I mean, in some levels, it would be interesting to think the uh, the you know the perspective of the author, whoever, wherever Robert Frost is, you know, whoever's voice he's speaking in, that you would probably tell that story differently in your own journey. There there may be times in your life where you think, ah, oh, I did take the road less taken, and it turns out you really didn't. You you actually. And what's funny internally, in the poem he says like that. I thought maybe I'll take. That road, but then I really knew I'll never circle back to it. The other one, like he kind of, he he sort of like it, it, it's all the rationalizations, like in the midst of the choosing that he's narrating. It's great. Well, you know, it's uh, it's funny too. I mean, you look, for instance, at you know the counterculture. All right, well, where did those counterculture people end up as middle aged people and as senior citizens? I mean, in terms of they embraced. Uh, capitalism, and one might even say that the capitalism that got produced from that generation. There's a really good book. That I forget the author of it. Where did I hear? But it's basically, it's this guy like arguing how the hippie communes made really good entrepreneurs. They learned some skills in these communes that made like them good Silicon Valley people. Yeah, exactly. Like they actually picked up some hard skills and things, right, and learned how to trade and bargain and and, and jury rig and and even some of the children who grew up under that kind of parenting or that kind of lack of parenting. It's interesting to see those skills. And you know, it's it's funny. I mean, uh my my uh I have a son and I have four sons, but my, I was talking to my one son recently and you know, he kind of identified with the hipster culture for a while and still kind of does. But it was funny he was complaining about millennials. Now, I'm not sure where the cutoff age of millennials, what, what the cutoff number is. He's pretty close to the cutoff, but, but he was complaining. And it was interesting, just his own version of his own. Okay. He kind of marched to a different beat, but the different beat he was marching to was a conformity to the people that were marching around him. So it's, we all do that. I mean, we all do that. And I think that's an interesting thing because sometimes we seem freer than we are. And then at other times, I think we actually, when we don't seem to be having choices, um, maybe some of the greatest freedom we ever express is how the freedom to respond in a way that is either redemptive, mature, or does not minimize your humanity. Maybe some of the most amazing things I've seen is when people were faced with no choices, perhaps, you know, whether it's a terminal diagnosis or a relationship is going to end that they didn't want to end or the loss of a significant other through death. And so there's no freedom in the sense of, I wish this isn't going to happen or can we change the circumstance? But the freedom comes in their ability to how am I going to do do this? How am I going to live after this event? Yeah. And that book, um, The Power of Meaning, I talked to this woman a few months, maybe a month and a half ago or two months ago. Good book. It's been making the rounds. And she, one of the things she says in Meaningful Lives, one of the practices you see are people that can storytell, that actually they're able to narrate their lives in ways that make sense of the peaks and valleys. And they're able to re-narrate it in, exactly in light of new conditions on the ground, in light of different insights or lack thereof. You know, so I think that is – and she actually concludes the book with this story of this 
person, a doctor, I think, who basically, t- it's like a six weeks process with terminally ill cancer patients who are coming to grips with the meaning of their death. And they journal and they write and they, it's really, a, it, it's a powerful thing that he's done. And, and the people that went through it talk about how meaningful it was. But yeah, I think that is, um, it can be an incredibly powerful thing just to be able to, to, to be able to, to like tell the story of where you are even to yourself. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes in the most extreme situations, uh, we can learn lessons for the more normal situations. I don't, and maybe you remember the source. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't. Did you have an opportunity to study with Diogenes Allen at all? I didn't. I okay. didn't. I didn't. Uh, but there's a story, and if any of you, I know some of you listening, uh, will probably study more with him than I did, and will remember the source of the story. But I remember him uh, telling this story. And uh, it was about a woman who was tortured uh, for, and I don't even know why she was tortured in the gulag. She was a person of faith, um, and I'll get the details wrong, but she went through like eight torturers until they decided to stop torturing her. And in this memoir, they uh, they kind of she she's talking about well, how is it that she broke the torturers, and even though she was being brutalized, and she said, I, I decided to do two things. One, I decided I was not going to hate them. The person who was torturing me, I'm not going to dehumanize them and hate them. And then I also said I would not let the torture take away my humanity either. And because to be a successful torturer, you have to do one of two things. You have to see what the the person that you're torturing is less than human. Uh, or if you feel anger or hate from them, then that that you know, then you're responding to someone who hates you. But if neither of those things happen, then it's disarming. And somehow that allows, at least in her situation, the tortures became human again, or they couldn't deal with that. And uh, yeah. and uh, that's, by the way, the horrible, that's part of the reason the death camps came into existence, because uh, so many soldiers in the early parts of World War II, the German soldiers, were having to just do the mass killing. Yeah, they couldn't handle it. Yeah, they couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle Now, again, these are horrible extreme situations, but, I mean, it would seem to me like the the place, you know, you've mentioned about people coming to terms with their death, or if you're a prisoner with no freedom and you can't protect yourself against torturers, but even there you had the freedom that in her situation uh, literally ended up setting her free. Yeah, and I think, like, what's interesting, too, is that what— I can't get out of my mind is the undoing project. And, you know, that Michael Lewis spoke about, um, who are the scholars, uh, Tarnovsky and Kahneman, these psychologists, right. That basically shape every field. Right. We know I mean, they, they do all these great experiments where they tell people, even psychologists, they have spin a wheel of fortune. And then <laughs> ask them how many, how many countries are on the continent of Africa and the higher the, n- the number right. they spun the more, or they would do these, would you choose this or this? And it's the exact same amount of money, but framed as a sure thing, they would choose it Framed as a risk. You wouldn't. And all these, just basically, the most of the time, their theories. We don't know what the hell we're doing, and we don't. We're not present to. We're we're are, we just don't think very well. A lot of times, he talks about slow and fast kind of thinking, and and that, that so often our snap judgment stuff is going on, and we're not really aware. And there's a review of it in the New York Times, and this guy at the end says, I read The Undoing Project during the final days of the 2016 presidential campaign and its aftermath. In many ways, the campaign's result and its winner represented the antithesis of Kahneman and Tversky's work. The election was a victory for gut instinct over empiricism, for cynicism over reason. But the full message of Kahneman and Tversky's work, I think, is more subtle than it often seems, and even more important in the new political world than the old. 
the human species is a fantastically complex and uh, is, is fantastically complex and often doesn't know what it is doing. The search for a better understanding of our behavior is vital. It's also difficult, never ending, and still very much worth the struggle. And I think that's the like commencement address. Like that, that yeah, that your life is so much more complex, uh, and the world is more complex than you are present to or understand. And that doesn't make it um, not worth. Uh, trying to pursue the good life, I yeah. mean, a, a life of meaning and significance. Yeah, I, I think, and I'd like to offer an alternative uh, graduation talk. I'm not going to give Donald, it to you. Alternative with Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bigly, it's as big. <laughs> but, well, you only get one scoop of ice cream, Bill. And actually, you know, if those of you who have to buy books for graduates, this, I, this is my book recommendation. Um, again, for years I gave people like, Dostoevsky and Augustine for graduation. And I'm pretty sure this book's probably didn't get read. But here's a, a great book. It's by, um, let me remember, James Ryan. He is the dean of the School of Education Harvard. And he this is based on a, um, a graduation address he did, I think, at Harvard a number of years ago. And the book's called Wait What? And it's about, he basically asked five questions. And so what he, what he talks about is, and I think this is perfect, uh, a perfect approach to if you enter into life at any stage, or if you enter, that's if you enter into tomorrow. So those of you are listening, whenever you hear this, tomorrow, if you enter into your day uh, guided by questions as opposed to answers, it, it might be a totally different thing. His, his five questions are, wait, what? I wonder, couldn't we at least? How can I help what truly matters? And then he expands on oh, those five questions cover a lot of different areas. There's a bonus question, but you're going to have to read the book to get that, which I think is pretty remarkable. But it's an easy read. But I think it's very profound in terms of because I think when we ask questions, even just your uh, – you and I have talked about this poem before. Even your analysis of the poem makes us go back and look at something we think we knew. But by asking a different kind of question, we see a whole different world. I think the same thing is true about relationships. It's about decision-making, about conflict, about what our ultimate meaning of life is. And, you know, what we do day to day, uh, I think is it's an amazing thing to think about. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting that the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew canon, ends in Chronicles. That's some very good and some nice yeah, nice Jewish scholarship exactly, dropped there. Yeah, the Tanakh, right. It ends in Chronicles, which is different than right. the, the way the, the Christian ordering of it is. And that's significant, right? Because Chronicles, is it tells a different story on the monarchy than First yeah. and Second Kings. And it's <laughs> it, 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 it's, it begins differently and, and kind of ends differently. And it's it seems like it's an ending that is a little less romantic about the Davidic dynasty being reestablished, and actually that God would have to establish right. the, the, the monarchy. The, it, it, it seems like it's a post-exile take on what the pe- being the people of God, where and how, and what that, what all those questions, what they entail. And I, I think that that's sig- it's significant that the, 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 the canon, you know, that the, the writers, the inspired writers are able to retell a story with the same characters, uh, but give it a different meaning so that they're able to respond to a different time and place and, and situation of being the people of God. And, it's, and I think that's an amazing example, because if you could compare it to the Deuteromistic history, which is what it's really a reworking of, uh, at least First and Second Samuels and First and Second Kings, it's both, it's both more positive than, it's less pessimistic 
than the Deuteronomistic historian, because the Deuteronomistic historian is probably writing this in the, you know, in the, in the midst of the ruins. And if, you know, if this is one thing, I can teach you a, hu- hold, uh, a huge pun- bunch of the Old Testament with this simple phrase, okay, you're obedient to God, things go well. You're disobedient <laughs> to God, things go bad. That that basically is the story from Deuteronomy all up through Second Kings. But you're right, the Chronicler is, uh, in some levels, the Davidic promise is more idealized. Uh, it's a more, it's some levels, there's a better spin on things, but it's also kind of more realistic. I think that's an interesting, and you know what, looking at you right, looking at the same story, but in a new reality, and we need new meanings from the story, which the Chronicler um, gives us. Yeah, Don Gowan says that you could read the prophets and, and a lot of this tradition sort of deuteronomistically. Um, but he says, really, he thinks the overall message isn't Israel sins, stop sinning, so that you'll get to choose life again. He's like, it's more like Israel has sinned, Israel has died. Now, now Israel has to put its hope in the God who can raise the dead. And, they, and actually, Jensen thinks that the whole question for all of Christian theology is, can these bones can live? These, and these and bones that the live. resurrection of Jesus is the answer to God's own question. So. Yeah, that's a powerful answer. The long and winding road that leads to your door will never disappear I've seen that road before. It always leads me here. Lead me to your door. The wild and windy night that the rain.
Santa 